We are surrounded by incredibly strong people. Their journeys, like us all, are full of resilience, persistence, inner strength, and an ability to gain perspective to make the best of what is thrown our way. This is People Are Amazing, the podcast. Today's guest is G. G is a child abuse survivor. She's one of seven kids. All of them were abused by both parents. This led to stints in foster care, enduring relationships that were centered around domestic violence and Stockholm Syndrome. She didn't imagine her life like this. So one day when enough was enough, she took back the control of her future. And now at 24 years of age, she has finished her psychology degree and has used this knowledge to manage her childhood trauma and is now thriving. This is G's story. Listener discretion is advised. All right, well, look, let's get into it because I know it's very early in the morning for you. This time zone is going to kill us. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for, for volunteering and getting involved in this. I think it's just such an amazing, um, you know, just having briefly spoken to you, you had such an incredible story that I think people who know about you or have been through a similar situation would really benefit from learning how you've managed to get through it. Um, yeah. So to kick us off, how about you give us a bit of an idea of what your childhood was like? So, um I have, I'm one of seven. Um, I'm the third oldest, but I'm the oldest girl. So I've got two brothers older than me, um, two brothers younger than me and two sisters younger than me. Um, my parents abused us from day one. Like my earliest memories were very, very violent. Um, and it was just, yeah, just repeated near-death experiences as a child for, at the hands of our caregivers. Um, yeah, it was very, very, very violent. Um, what kind of violence are we talking I'm, about here? When you say near-death experiences, sounds um, literally everything, like beating, beating you to a pulp, going to school with like black eyes, and just I remember like um, my dad beating my brother for like an hour once, and going in his room after, and there was just blood everywhere. And, had blood all over his face all his guitars were smashed up like he would get like a guitar and like beat the shit out of a an 11 year old with it like yeah and then te- they would te- teach try and teach the kids that it was like a fun thing to beat whoever they wanted to beat up was, yeah and then I just sort of had this um because I had four younger siblings I just got this like moment when I was a kid when I was like I have to protect them like yeah it was it was scary and yeah I remember like waking up coming around after being beat once to like my little sisters like cuddling me and telling me everything was going to be okay and that was like their memories as younger siblings yeah and I just, I sort of developed OCD um, after like repeatedly having my head bashed against a bunk bed. Um, I just thought, if I just had this thought, like if I don't touch the sides of the bed with my hands four times, four times, four times, four times over and over again, that she was going to come in and she was going to kill me. Um, and then just having this obsession for the rest of my childhood up until I was about 15, where if I didn't carry out these rituals, um, one of us was going to die or 
we were going to get separated. And then eventually we all got separated and my OCD went away for like five years. Why did your parents have so many children if they were going to treat them so badly? I have, I have this question a lot from people and I really think they had, they were the oldest in their families the oldest siblings they had quite well-off parents and then they went into the world and really get into psychology and you look at social shame like it's a big catalyst for narcissism sociopathy personality disorders um now if, if you're having a problem like a really really bad problem that someone might think is shameful you would just say I'm having a problem. Like I would just say, I'm having disturbing thoughts. I need, I need some help or I need some time off. Whereas then it was like, they were hiding everything. Um, and it, I don't really think it was just them as people. I think like their generation, it was very make everything look nice on the outside. What goes on behind closed doors stays behind closed doors. So there was never really anybody to come in and say, Hey, like you guys have a problem. You're ill. Like this isn't normal. This isn't, even their their relationship as adults now looking at it, it wasn't it, it wasn't love, it was neuroses. They were obsessed with each other. Um, and I think, yeah, just it really, it really looking back on it now, they were that sort of that sort of Freudian thing of like they had sexual complexes, they were neurotic. Um, yeah, they they couldn't we were there to make them feel good. When people have a baby, I, I, I look at people now on the street and I think, oh, I want a baby, it's so cute. You get that sort of thrilling um, moment where you get all those chemicals rushing through your body at the thought of having a baby. But that's just a chemical reaction. That's your body going, ooh, I want a, I want a mother, I want to do that. But the reality of it is you don't have a baby. A baby has you. <laughs> um, you look after the baby. and they couldn't deal with that reality of children need you, not you needing a child to fulfill your emotional desire. And I think a lot of people get caught up in that. Um, like I see a lot of young people having kids now and think you're emotionally not developed really until you're like at least 25 and people having babies at like 14. And then they're just spending their whole life neurotic, having loads of children and when I think back to my parents and their generation, they weren't, you know, we're only just getting really well informed, like the last 10 years, all this social media, this, the free knowledge, the access to knowledge, everything. They just weren't equipped. And I don't think they understood what having a child meant. I think they thought you, you finish school, you go to college, you have a baby, you get married, you stay in that marriage your whole life. And it was just an insane, obsessive way of planning your life, really. I, it sounds like hell. Um, it was hell. But for me, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine now being like, I need to get married. I need to get a house. I need to get a job. I need to pay the... Like, I couldn't imagine that. Seven kids is so much. One dog is so much. Um, one kid sounds so much. So much. Um, but, but to do that to seven kids is is another thing. Yeah, I, I just think they weren't ever thinking about other people. Um, like when it, they were kids in their heads, even now as adults, me and my siblings, emotionally, some of us are really just sort of, we are actually developing 
quite okay. And our parents are still like teenagers emotionally. And that is, that is the, like the fundamentals of a personality disorder. Um, they can't grasp how to change. Yeah, it's, it's just their whole lives are just covering up the things they do. It's, it's sad. They'll never really understand how they, what they've done to our brains either because they just don't have the theory of mind to understand. Yeah. sound so unbelievably self-aware. Even when you're talking about yeah. parents and your experience, it sounds so objective. Yeah. Very, very clinical because you just have almost to a point, well, just shows how far you've come. I think, yeah. In, interestingly, interestingly enough, when I really started seeking sort of psychiatric and psychological help, nothing they could tell me was good enough. And then one day I went home and did some research and I came back to the psychiatrist and I said, hey, this is what's going on with my brain. Why didn't you tell me this? And he said, because most of my clients don't want to know the neuropsychology of, of what's going on. I was like, oh, why? Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure they do. Like, it's probably why a lot of people are coming. They really want to know what is actually exactly what's going on. Yeah. So when it does happen, they can say, oh, this thing's happening in my brain because of this. It's good to have that. But at times it's like, it doesn't change it, it doesn't stop it. Like there's been times of despair whilst doing my degree where I've been like, knowing all this stuff is worse because <laughs> I'm seeing it and I can't change it, especially with my family um, and society as a whole, like people. Um, things like the bystander effect um, and social conformity, learning about that, like the, the extent of what people would go to to do the thing their boss told them to do, even if it meant giving someone electric shocks or like people just standing on the street and watching a girl being murdered by their boyfriend, expecting someone else to help. I've literally experienced that my whole life. And it is all you want is the bystander to help. And by not helping, they're just helping the psychopath. They're helping the abuser. They're helping the killer they're helping the sociopaths in power. And I, and I think I see that now on a, on a collective scale, like with the Black Lives Matter and everything. Um, with Corona, everyone's sort of really willing to jump around and sort of just go a bit crazy and um, project their anxiety when, but that is just the conformity on a day-to-day -day basis. Nobody's really in their lives doing anything to stop the bad things in the world happening, even as far as like plastics and dairy and meat, like people just aren't willing to do the job. They expect someone else to come and do the job when as individuals, we need to do the job. And that's, the thing, that's what it sort of left me with my psychology degree. I'm having like an existential crisis. <laughs> Did you have any bystanders in your childhood that you wished helped? Um, Funnily enough, like my siblings, there was a lot of like laughing when I was getting beat. And then like, this is what we had this conversation of siblings. Like I would be the one there screaming, calling my parents child abusers and then I would get beat up. Um, but also like my best friend lived next door but one. Um, my other best friend, her mum was a social worker and then one day when I was 12, we, we got drunk for the first time. We drank a three litre 
bottle of cider and I told my two best friends and um, she told her mum and her mum said to me, took me aside one day and said, I've known this whole time, but I've not been able to do anything until you've said something. And I was just like, wow, you're a social worker and you knew and you didn't do anything. And then even then, like me and my brother spoke to social workers at school. We told them everything. And I just remember uh, my, the social worker coming around the house and my parents dressed really nice. Like my dad was in the suit. They made like biscuits and tea and all the siblings were downstairs and I was sent to my room. And because there were so many of us, you could really just get away with not having one of them there. And I just remember sort of poking my head around the staircase into the living room and my parents telling the social worker how crazy I was and how I had all these behavioral problems and I did all this crazy stuff. And this lady just falling for it. And I'm just thinking, wow. And they left and they signed us off and they just let us carry on getting abused. And it was, yeah, it was really insane that I think people don't realize when they, when you see like, um, so I don't know if this was like worldwide or it was just in our country. So we had like a baby pee case and it was really famous. This kid got murdered by his parents and there's been a few of them. I've seen one in America where these parents moved their kids around the country and they tied them up. I don't think people realize that as individuals, um, you suspect people, you suspect the drug addict, you suspect the alcohol, you know, you know, like the rough person on the estate or something, but people don't suspect the sociopath. You're never going to suspect the sociopath. That's why they're a sociopath. That's why they're in power. That's why they're in control. Um, and I think, yeah, again, as a collective, that's what we really need to realize now is our compassion is raising. I think our compassion, our knowledge, it's all raising. We're developing but also there's still going to be sociopaths who are going to come in and take control. And that's where you get the cults and the, the, the dangerous movements and the, the racism, the murder, all of it, um, down to child abuse, drug, sex trafficking. It's, it, there's sociopaths sort of weaning their way in. And I think that's what it came down to. They were very good uh, playing, playing characters even now, like my parents are very good at playing characters and pretending they're somebody else. Um, like the, the, my mum's partner doesn't have a clue what she's done. Um, even my dad, so they don't, they don't know. Um, I try to speak to my stepsisters about it and they'll minimize that nobody really knows what they did to us. They go away with it. Um, and I don't think people realize that, that true, true abusers, they get away with it. Um, until they really hurt somebody, until somebody kills themselves or until they kill someone, until somebody kills them. And that's what you end up seeing on the news is when it gets to that point. And I think as a society and definitely as a psychologist now, like it's, it's about pre preventing and educating people from a young age about their minds um, and about the people around them and about when to really step up, even as a kid, like at school people get bullied because nobody stands up to the bully. They let the person be bullied. They'll say in silence to the person being bullied, I saw you getting bullied, but they won't support the person um, in a way that draws attention to themselves. And that's human nature. That's the survival instinct. That's the animal, the animal in the herd sort of trying to survive. Do you ever think, you, no one, sorry. Do you ever think that your step, siblings might be at risk? Um, well, they're adults, but 
I have, yeah, it's, it's a psychological thing now. It's not physical. And I, it's very easy to convince somebody you've changed if you go from abusing people psychologically to physically, uh, um, physically to psychologically. And I think that's, that's a big issue again because it's so subtle anyone can accidentally you know manipulate someone and then you can own up to it but psych psychological abuse it's it's turning people against each other it's convincing people things are all in their head it's convincing people that they're ill when they're not and then they get ill so then they just blame themselves anyway and it's seven kids different ages it's it's hard to kind of pinpoint when all of this started for them do you recall a time where you were happy all seven of you Definitely. Actually, there was um, just every time another sibling was born, that was amazing. Feeding, feeding a newborn baby is amazing. Changing nappies, um, putting clothes on a newborn baby is amazing. Um, there was a time, um, so me and my sister shared a room and I would be on the bottom bunk because she would be on the top and she used to wee the bed and um, we used to like get up and change all the bedding so nobody else would find out because my brothers would like take the mick out of her and everything. Um, and then sometimes she'd do it again. So she'd get into my bed and then my younger si sister would sleep in our room. She was about one and she would need bottle feeding and my dad wouldn't have her in with my mum and dad. So my mum would make her a bottle and put her in the middle of us. And the three of us would just fall asleep together feeding my little sister and it was just amazing and like babysitting them. My mum had to do a cleaning job because my dad wouldn't get us Christmas presents and I would babysit them and we would all be like watching The Simpsons by 6 p.m. and then I'd, I'd make their dinner, I'd bath them, put them to bed. That like, and yeah, just like things like playing murder in the dark and doing dance routines. We still did those things. And my friends as well, like I, I was lucky enough to have friends who had sort of normal families, some, so to speak, um, and just doing things like going berry picking and going and getting all loads of two peas and going down to the penny shop. Um, yeah, just, yeah, like playing Kirby, all of that, like definitely as a child, that's what got me through. Like as a teenager, when I got in my abusive relationship and coming out of that, even though the abuse wasn't as bad, it felt worse because I had no family, I had no friends. I was so isolated. Whereas a child, I wasn't so isolated. I had school. You always had your siblings as well to be there to support you, which is good. Yeah, we always had each other. Um, like at Christmas, we would all like get in the same bed and we would all freak out over Father Christmas. And yeah, we always had that. Like we were always playing pranks on each other. Yeah. You, you always had that sort of eternal person, like between talking about your one-year-old sister, nursing her and falling asleep together, and they're your favourite memories. You've got such a nurse, nurturing maternal side about you. I think so. And I, it's, yeah, it's hard because I don't really ever want to have kids now because it's like, <laughs> I just think like what they've left us with, they've left us with the things we've learned from them and they've traumatized our brains and i just think even like everything i've learned in psychology has taught me like even the smallest things about children like i see in the supermarket the way people react to their child when their child wants something or when their child's distressed even the smallest little thing like 
don't bloody touch that. Do you know what I mean? It's like, why? Why can't the ta- child just touch the apple? The child want, is learning. It wants to know what an apple feels like and what it look, why is it shining? Do you know what I mean? It wants to know. It's inquisitive. It wants to know all of those things. Um, it's like seeing everything. And it's, yeah, I just think I have these moments where I'm going to always have these moments in my life where I'm going to be ill and people can't be around me and I can't be around people. Um, which is a shame. Going back to, um, you know, your, your understanding around psychology, being a psychologist yourself, you mentioned that the makeup of your brain has shifted. What yeah. Did they, what did they find that made your neurological makeup different to someone who hadn't gone through what you've gone through? Well, so people, when you say complex PTSD, it's, it's such a new term people confuse it with PTSD and they think, oh, why don't, why don't you get EMDR on? It's not, it's, it's that people often ask me if I'm autistic or schizophrenic. I'm like, no, um, sort of. <laughs> um, it's, it's the abuse through the different developmental stages that sort of traumatize the brain to just gradually, as it's growing, it's growing differently every time it's traumatized. Um, and the brain doesn't, can't distinguish between a bang on the head and being traumatized. Trauma is just trauma to the brain. Um, And yeah, it's just over time. It's the way you're thinking about things. Um, Even like stimulation, like having too much sound. um, Definitely like my attention network. Like I, I just got an award for, from the B- the British Psycho- Psychological Society for the highest achieving student on my degree. And I thought, what? Like, my network is like bugging out and I got an award. I was like, what? Like this is these areas of my brain that sort of, I learned this during my degree and then I was going to therapy and I was saying, hey, is this, is this a thing? And they were like, yeah, that's, that's actually what happens. I was like, oh, I thought I had like an aphasia. I thought I, thought I had like dementia. <laughs> I actually thought I had dementia because I, I couldn't, I, I got to like 2017 and I started forgetting my words, but like rapidly and I couldn't even hold a thought in my head anymore. And I really, cause I'd abused drugs. Like I thought, no, I've like, I've got an aphasia, like I've, I've got brain damage. And it wasn't until uni, I realized that what was happening was my attempt, I was having executive dysfunction, but it was because my attention network, my brain is trying to recover from trauma. Um, it takes a long time just to recover from like a small trauma. Now, if, if you physically hurt yourself, it could take like weeks or months to heal from that. And my brain's doing that unconsciously. And then if you fill your brain with just sort of normal stimuli, making a cup of tea, reading a book, and then you fill your brain with like getting money, paying the bills, and then you fill your brain with like, if you're traumatized, going in social situations, um, loud noises, people, deadlines, your brain is just gonna stop. And that's when you get like the dissociation or spatial working memory issues. Um, and then you end up getting like diagnoses like fibromyalgia and ME because the brain and the body is just, just telling you, no, just stop. And I think that's where I'm at now is I'm not, I've got my degree, I, I, I got this award, I know I can get a job, I know I can hold it down, but 
I actually need to rest. <laughs> my brain needs to rest. My body needs to rest. Um, otherwise, you will just end up in like a dementia, chronic fatigue state. So what's your relationship like with your siblings now? Do you see them often? How do you guys interact? And is there a lot of discussions around the past? There is, and it's quite distressing because I've come away from them. Um, and then there's younger ones that have come back and then they're like super freaking out about how things are and it's really affecting their mental health and they want to talk about it, but they also don't really remember much of the abuse. And then there's three, there's four older ones and who we like remember everything. And we're, it's like struggling with like integrating into society and stuff like that for all of them. Um, I speak to my sister, my sisters every day at the moment, and one of my younger brothers. Um, my older brother uh, with bipolar, I haven't been speaking to that much. He was actually, we were best friends as teenagers. We like supported each other through all of this. Um, but I don't really speak to him that much anymore. <laughs> um, and then there's another older brother and a younger brother, and they're just so ill. Like they visited about a month ago and it's yeah they're just so ill they can't even look at people it's and that's the the thing which is like when it's so bad that you're all basically terrified of everyone in society apart from your abusers that's when you know like that's when the real issues start revealing themselves um and if you and it really is like you cannot control what childhood you have but you have control over your adult life and now like there's so much help out there anyone that's been abused as a child you you just you can like manifest you can get the motivation to just do it as soon as you start getting help as soon as your only goal in life is i need to get better everything will start everything will fall into place and I think to get better. Yeah. Yeah. Like everything falls into place. As soon as I was like, I'm going to change my life. I'm going to get better. Um, everything just sort of started falling into place because your self-esteem starts raising and then you start doing one or two things that are good for you. And then you start doing those things every time you start feeling a bit bad. And yeah, it's definitely hard. You can't make other people get better, even if you know how to make them better. You guys were separated after you leaving your parents' care into foster care for a little while and you all separated. What was that like? Yeah. In contact, how old were you during that time? How long were so you? So I, I actually voluntarily put myself into care when I was 14. And that's when I met my boyfriend who abused me for five years. Um, and then I, we actually came back to live with my mum and... Um, because we had protected her um, because we thought things were going to change and it didn't, it was really quite bad. Um, we sort of then went off and like said to the social workers, actually like, this is what happened. And then we all got, they all got taken away. I got put into foster care. Three of them got put into foster care together. One of them refused to go and then eventually got put in a secure unit. And he was put in secure units and psychiatric wards for like six years. And he's really institutionalized. Um, 
And then one got adopted. So there was just two in foster care. And we were not allowed to see each other at all. Um, my older brother had a psychotic episode and he was sectioned for a year. I was not speaking to my mom. I moved in with my boyfriend. Um, and I was just being horrifically abused. Um, did he do the same thing like what your parents did? Or? He wasn't as violent. Um, but yeah, I, I feared for my life. Like I was, if you, if you didn't have sex, like that was it. Like shit was going to go down. Like I, I've like walked the streets in my pajamas with no socks on in the rain and stuff like that. Um, his mom actually got involved and sort of really tried to help me leave um, repeatedly. Just that was like the whole relationship was his mom trying to help me because she, she kicked him out because of that. Um, and that for me was hell. Like that was that moment everybody dreads in their life. I just remember when my brother came out of the psychiatric ward, we, we did a birthday party for him and we had him over for like a week. And then I remember my boyfriend going ballistic at me because I couldn't get any money for him to get weed. And he just started beating me up in front of everybody. And all my friends, my brother, they ran out the house and I, my head was like getting caved into the floor and I was getting strangled and pinned down and everything. And I just remember then thinking, this is, this is it. This is limbo. This is like how my parents lived their life. Um, they're your formative years, like they're the years that you are going to become a woman. It's, it's you know, mm. childhood and your, your, your young adult life sort of growing into that big adult. This is everything that you've experienced. It's yeah. How, how did you pull through? How did you get over it? When did you I, start realizing, Oh my God, I need to pull myself out. It was so when you hear people saying they try to leave and you're like, but why didn't you leave? It really is like, I remember like when my relationship with my mum got better and she got a, a house in the same town just so I could run to it. And he like bricked the window um, because I wouldn't come back. Like it really was that forceful, you're not leaving, you're staying in the house. Like you're not allowed out, you're not allowed friends, you're not allowed to hang out with people without me. You're not allowed to do anything. Like you're not allowed to text people, like anything. I remember trying to leave to go to my mum's and I actually threw, I think a bedside cabinet out the window and the police got called and they took me to my mum's cause he just wouldn't let me leave. And this was like at 15 years old and he was like 18. And it was, it was, yeah, I think his family were such a big support. He had sisters similar age as me and his mom and his stepdad, they were so supportive. They would just come and get me and they had a farm and they would take me there. And it definitely was that moment in my life though, where I was in hell and things were never going to end. I saw no future, no way out. Um, no way of getting my family back, no way of escaping this person. I had no money. I had nothing. Um, yeah, it was hell. It was hell. And it was like I had two miscarriages in that time, had pneumonia four times, I nearly died. Like I, I couldn't, I had cysts on my ovaries, I couldn't move, I couldn't have sex. And then that was like a reason to go ballistic at me. It was just hell. Like I was so skinny, I was so hungry. I remember us having like a tea bag, one tea bag and a bag of sugar to our name because 
all of the money just went on weed. Like he was getting my child benefit. He was getting my child tax credits. Um, and we would just be left with nothing. He would spend like 30 pounds a fortnight on food just so he could get weed. I was like six stone, really ill. Yeah, but his family were definitely a big support. But also it's that thing again, I saw my parents in him. It was very, his family were doing everything for him, no matter what he did. Even now, like I've been in contact with his family and it's very, he's still doing it. He's still abusing people and he's still taking. And it's, it's those people that just do that their whole life um, without a second thought of what, what they've done to another person's mind permanently. You know, it's not just something, it's, it's not something you, get over very quickly like I've had friends do some really messed up things to me and it's still taking me like a year to get over um, but these are like people like your family your partner these are tight attachments and that sort of yeah definitely difficult now I'm, I'm around normal people and really seeing basically how mental I am <laughs> and why because I know I know the um, the terminology behind it as well. So it's like, oh no, this is happening because of this. And like, no, people don't do those things. It's just thought. Um, Let me ask you, being in, in long-term relationships where relationships aren't working and you still hang around in your circumstances yeah. far more severe than that. Um, yeah. What are you feeling? Like, why did you keep going back? You jumped out of a window when you were 15, but you were in that relationship for five years. So, you know, doing the maths, you would have been, what, 18 or 19 when you guys officially yeah. up. But why, what yeah. to him? Was it really that comfort around, this is how my parents was, and so now I feel like this is how he's showing me love, almost. I really thought that I think nobody's ever going to love me, and... Now as a psychologist as well, looking back on it, it's, it's that anxious, ambivalent attachment. It's, I was programmed to always be scared if, if the person you love the most leaves. And it was like, I would go back to him, go back to him. And it's, yeah, even like, it's weird. I've, I, I, it actually, it ended when I was 19, he turned up at my flat that I had, I'd, I'd left. Social services has helped me. They put me in open doors. I'd got on a college course. I got my own flat and I'd left. And six months later, he turned up at my door um, high on heroin and refused to leave. And I had friends there and he would not leave. And I, I just remember this moment where I was like, if you won't leave my life, I'm going to leave my life. And I stabbed myself repeatedly in the kidney and I was in hospital. <laughs> had an operation his parents were there and it was like it's definitely that um very relentless persistent person they're never going to stop until they get what they want um and it's yeah it's it's dark these people spend like their whole lives doing this sort of stuff to people and along the way there probably will be like people who kill themselves and people who end up really ill and they're just not they don't give it a second thought they're just thinking about their their needs I mean, their sexual needs basically digressing here but do you think he had a, a like a terrible upbringing that kind of got him to that point because i think of, like, like you 
there's so much self-discovery and similar to your siblings. Yeah. I get to that point where life repeats itself. It's cyclical. But for him, yeah. it seems like they're definitely his his family were wealthy. Um they had a lot, but his his mum had a lot of personality problems, which actually after sort of leaving, because I was a teenager, and, and this is the thing with, with personality disorders is people with personality disorders, they're very similar to teenagers. So you'll relate to them a lot as a teenager, but definitely I've met her as an adult and been like, whoa, steady on. This is like, why are you doing that? Like you're doing that on purpose. Why are you doing that? Um, and seeing how that affected her children, like she would say some really sick things to them and just acting out all the time. And it's just what those people do. It's just, everything's just acting out. Um, they're never really thinking about how they affect people, not even their own children. And that just, that cycle repeats. You either get away from them and be traumatized or you get like them. Either way, it's not really a, a great, a great sort of, yeah, it's not really a great prognosis. <laughs> it's sad because this is society at the moment. There's just such a high um, rate of personality disorders. Um, and I think the more stimulation we have, the worse it's going to get. Yeah, society definitely just needs to be really stripped back, everything. Yeah, and controlled as well, like alcohol. It's definitely a big thing. Like people shouldn't be able to go into a shop and get alcohol. Like if you get, if you go and get a prescription, you get like what your body can handle for your mental health disorder or whatever. It should be the same with alcohol. You should go into a shop. I don't know, like you put your thumb on your screen on your phone. You should put your thumb on the tail and they say, oh no, you've had this many units this week, you weigh this much, you have this disorder, so you can't drink anymore. Oh, and you have a history of acting out when you're drunk. No, sorry, you can only have one can of beer a week. Do you know what I mean? It should be controlled, stripped back, that people shouldn't be straining themselves and working these ridiculous hours, putting themselves under all this strain, and then going out and drinking and taking drugs on the weekend, putting their body under more strain. Yeah. Too much. Absolutely right. And I love that you're such an advocate for psychology and mental health because and I think in this yeah. day and age, mental health and you know, having that support is so important. I mean, this all happened for you in your twenties. So tell me, like when did things start to shift for you? You started well, troll, you started obviously studying and Yeah, so I, I got out of my relationship when I was nineteen. Um two of my siblings actually came back then. Um and I was at college, I was doing music production um, and I made, I made a few friends and then I hooked up with this guy and they were all really heavy on the drugs, like electronic music scene, a lot of sound and a lot of drugs and very, very again, very primitive. Um, and I was just like, oh my God, these people are awesome. They're so cool. Um, and I hadn't, I didn't have much experience with people either. I'd, I'd locked myself away, I'd become quite acrophobic. My only experience was very, very terrifying. So I just remember like taking a lot of MDMA and just completely losing it. Um, broke up with this guy, completely lost it, acted out very violently, trashed my whole house. 
and then moved in with my friend and I was just taking ketamine a lot, doing NOS a lot, um, smoking a lot of weed, really agoraphobic, terrified to go out, but like loads of people coming around my house and partying in my room and me having like panic attacks and being too scared to tell them to leave. Um, really being taken advantage of by sort of the low lives basically. Um, and then I applied for my psychology degree and I remember falling out with my friend and locking myself in my room for six weeks. Um, I remember not doing any drugs. I think I maybe smoked a bit of weed and I locked myself in my room for six weeks and I tried to kill myself. Um, and I remember, I remember coming back from hospital and having like the most horrific sleep paralysis attack and just like sort of sitting there in this really dissociated state thinking, whoa, this is like not what I pictured in my head. Like my siblings coming back and I'm, I'm not the person I want to be. This is not going to get better. Me carrying on doing this is not going to fix the situation, improve this, everything. It was really quite a dark disconnected space um and then I started my degree I wasn't taking any drugs anymore but all these drug addicts were coming around my house all the time and taking up my space and I was freaking out and um I just completely lost it like Christmas 2017 first semester of uni and I just lost it and I was so scared of the people I was living with. I thought they were like a sex cult, like I was freaking out. Um, I wasn't actually far off, to be honest. Um, and I just packed my bags. I found the nearest place I could find. I said to the landlord, look, I, I'm, I have disability money, but I'm at uni. Like I can give you the money. Like I don't have a job right now. I'm really mentally ill. I need to get away from these people. I'll stay here whilst I do my degree. I'll be quiet. Like, I don't take drugs. I don't want anything like that. No alcohol, nothing. I don't have any friends. I'm just going to sit here and study and then I'm going to leave. And that's literally what I did. I moved into this place. I, I cut everybody off. I deleted all my social media. I didn't talk to any of my family. Um, I literally cut everybody off. I wrote a list of things I wanted to do to make my life better. Things, so easy things to build my self-esteem and then like, hard things that were going to like make permanent changes. Um, and yeah, I just worked my ass off. I lost like three stone. I was, I had like two books on the side of my bedside cabinet and one book in my hand constantly. Um, I was only going out to do things that were good for me. I stopped eating dairy and gluten. I eventually went vegan. Like I was just doing things for me for about a year. I was too scared to be around people. Even university was really scary being around people, analyzing their behavior. And then, then I was analyzing their behavior as a psychologist, but like a mentally ill psychologist. So it wasn't, it wasn't really healthy. I was, I isolated myself. I somewhat got better and then sort of uh, got obsessed with these goals. Um, and then eventually developed bulimia. I was still ill, like nightmares every night, sleep paralysis attacks. Really scary, it's really, really scary. But also still like working my ass off. 
putting myself under a lot of strain actually but I've done it I've made permanent changes <laughs> yeah this has been a two-year journey for you to get to where you are now that level yeah of that you've got yeah and it's been very intense like that I have had the most insane delusions about people and society and because because I just can't understand why people are behaving the way they're behaving um, or how they're not seeing how it's affecting them. It's very distressing. Um, it does make you want to just be alone. Even like with, with the drugs thing, like people were doing that for fun socially. But for me, it was like, just knock me out. Like, I don't, I want you all to go away. Give me the thing and go away. Like, I just need to be knocked out. Even now, like I just come off SSRIs because they were, I was having such a bad effect off them. And I just said to my partner this morning, I think that's why people take drugs, isn't it? It's so when they're not on them, they realize how amazing things are when they're not on them. I think people lose their sort of gratitude for the small things. Perspective. Yeah. Well, it's bloody incredible that you've gone as far as you have. Like the stories, oh, it's blown, yeah. blown me away that you're sitting here and you're so, you've got such a forward thinking way of speaking. Like you've got a path, yeah. goals that you're heading towards, you know, yoga and meditation's got to help as well. But yeah, just, Hike, hiking as well is amazing nature. Yeah. COVID hasn't helped this year though. No, but it kind of has because nobody's been around. So you can go for a walk and it's really peaceful and you're not having a panic attack. <laughs> that was my perspective on it anyway. <laughs> What's your relationship like now with your with with your... My partner? Um, we've actually split up, <laughs> but we're still living together. We're still best friends. I think we're always going to be best friends. Like we've made a connection intellectually, um, our perspectives on the world, like to have these sort of existential thoughts and everyone around you to be like, dude, you're so crazy. Just get high. Um, and then to sort of come out of that and actually meet someone else who's on that level of wanting a minimalist life as well. Being happy, not doing anything, being quiet. We're definitely on a level with each other where I think we're always going to be friends. It just got to the point where I just got so mentally ill, things that are going on with my family. I think it's very easy when you're falling in love with someone to say, yeah, I can handle your mental health problems. Not really, because if you can't handle your own mental health problems, another person isn't going to. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> um, and you can all, I, I think there's a, when you split up with someone, there's a lot of resentment in that. Like you said you could handle it, but you can't. But in reality, if I'm not handling it, they're not going to handle it. And I think that's just being an adult. And like with the attachment issues that come with child abuse, like that caused a lot of problems. And I have the insight and the knowledge to go, oh, like I've been acting crazy because I have anxious ambivalent attachment. And also you have an avoidant attachment. So, but just accepting that, that we're still going to be friends. Um, there's been no, like no crazy sort of intense, dramatic stuff in our relationship. No, really, even with the like everyday neurosis or 
the, the issues I'm left with. It's, ne it's never really been much of an issue. I definitely think I'm at a point now where as soon as you stop having people in your life because they're not good for you, like you do really start attracting the things that are good for you. And if people can just accept, like people don't want to be alone. My sister says it a lot. She can't be alone. She feels too depressed. She feels too lonely. But if you can't be alone, then you will become needy. And if you become needy, then you will accept any treatment or any people. And, and you'll also behave badly to get the thing you want. Um, yeah. So I think just accepting like being really happy alone, you're going to be fine with or without someone. That's yeah, right. we're good. We're good. What's your relationship like with your parents now? Do you see them anymore? So I actually realized I had Stockholm syndrome my first year of uni when two of my siblings came home. And throughout my degree, everything I've been learning, I've been like realizing what not just they did to our personality development as children, but as adults, what they're doing to people and how it's affecting people's brains and stuff. And it has drove me insane like obsessively ruminating, having nightmares the whole time or having siblings like phoning me up, freaking out and it's been making me really ill. So actually I decided to take it back to court and press charges. I think I'm going to drop the charges and just settle for like a restraining order. But for me now, it's definitely really drawn the line with my siblings and said, look, you guys are going to have to go into therapy yourself. I'm not your therapist. Uh, this is affecting our relationship and making me really ill. If you want to talk about my mom or dad, please go and see a therapist. Um, and yeah, just sort of getting the restraining order and just, just not speaking to them again. Um, it's interesting with abuse because with a relationship you can walk away from, but with family, it's very hard. You have that attachment. But I, I was thinking this the other day, like as a psychologist, what is best. And I really think it really is best to walk away from your parents, no matter how hard it is, because you have, they've given you the anxious, ambivalent attachment style. And the only way really to, they, they've realized now is attachment styles can change throughout your adult life. But the only way to do that is to push yourself and integrate with people who have the opposite or a, a completely different attachment style. And you're not going to get that if you stay with your parents and you've got Stockholm syndrome because you're never going to be around any other people because you're scared of everyone. Um, so I really urge anyone who's sort of in that situation, just, just get up and leave and be lonely. It's fine. Being lonely is better than being super paranoid all the time. Um, forgiving them as well. Um, just accepting they don't understand not even themselves, really. They, they can't give you a reason why they did what they did. Um, which is sad. Um, distressing. Like, I think that's a thing with child abuse survivors is you can just spend your whole life trying to understand it. Um, I was actually watching a lecture online the other day about complex, complex PTSD and this older woman saying about how people with complex PTSD, they're never going to have a good life. The whole life is going to be about keeping healthy and they'll never be able to hold down a job. And I'm like, no, you can, but just integrate 
keeping healthy with your life. Um, make that something you care about, something you can help people with. Um, but yeah, my parents, it's, it's, it's hard because, you know, when you see your parents sad, you, you want to you wanna make things better for them. And then I see, I look into my mum's eyes and I see someone really ashamed of herself but can't change her behaviors. Um, so much shame and so much pain. Uh, my siblings, I think they, they like, oh, want her, you know, want to make her feel better. And it's, you, you can't, um, and it's just having a massive effect on their, their development. Massively conflicting, is, isn't it? So conflicting. It's so, so conflicting. Um, it is pure Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> yeah. It's intense. Definitely. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. But my, my final okay. question is, um, I want you to tell me how amazing you are. I want you to tell me what ahead <laughs> for you. And yeah, just, just tell me how amazing you are because you are freaking amazing. I think a bit. Not in a narcissistic sort of, I'm amazing. But I definitely think, yeah, like, like for me, singing is my whole life. I remember locking myself in my room and just singing and singing and singing. Um, and just making now as an adult the things I love. Because if, if you're scared of people, you're never, there's never going to be something you do with people or for people. People will say, well, oh, how are you going to feel in 20 years if you're not a famous singer? And I'm like very good because this is something the universe gave me to heal and the things I learned when I was healing they're my gift of people um and I really feel that like intensely the things I've learned like my life cause my meaning my purpose is to just use that to help people make a difference um and just not like feeling ashamed if I need time off, if I need a couple months off to rest, because if your body's like collapsing and you're tired and you, but you're not sleeping at the same time, that's your body saying no. And just definitely not worrying too much about what other people think. And accepting your own faults and your flaws, your vices, your shadows, and when somebody pulls you up on them and you get defensive, go, oh, hang on a second. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and that's uh, definitely a hard thing as a human. It's part of the journey. Um, not wanting anything from life materialistically now. Um, I mean, I'd like a nice cottage in the valleys, but like, not like thriving off, off the concept of money and holidays and things. Um, just peace, love, knowledge, comfort, security, food, those things. And then like the happy things, like maybe socialize every now and then and um, learning the ukulele and dancing and singing and hiking. Those are the important things, I think. Yeah. Will you go on to be a psychologist, a practicing psychologist? I think so, but for now I need a break. So I've been applying for writing jobs because everybody's just keep saying, you need to write, you need to write. Um, and I'm really feeling that like 
urge to write and I'm procrastinating so much. <laughs> so I think if I at least get a job as a writer, it's like, okay, I'm doing this, but I'm not doing psychology for at least, I mean, I've still applied for psychology jobs. So I'm telling myself I'm not doing psychology for a bit, um, but I'm still applying for jobs. Um, but I'm definitely just having a break from that sort of psychoanalyzing everything. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you again so much for sharing your story. You're such an inspiration. Thank you. So many people who have been in your situation that it's going to be better. You can get better. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Just, yeah, like people listen to this. I hope there's like the young girl or the young boy at home, like who listens and knows that you are not your childhood as an adult. You can do anything. You can be anyone. Thank you again. Seriously, I am flabbergasted. I feel ridiculously privileged to listen to the story. I, f I feel like I haven't lived <laughs> listening to your story. I feel, like, I feel like an old woman, honestly. People say this to me. I feel like I'm 75 and I'm 24. Like, I'm exhausted. <laughs> it is incredible. I think this is the stuff that comes with so much wisdom, so much self-reflection and you know, your, your absolute hunger and ambition to get better. Yeah. Overcome what has caused so much grief for you and your family for such a long time. And yeah, yeah. It's, it's fucking awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Bring it on world. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. I hope you have a really great day and I'm sure I'll be catching up with you again soon. Thank you so much. Take care. Have a lovely evening. You too. See ya. Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Max. And this podcast was hosted by my mum, Linda Quisoglu. If you liked this episode, please hit subscribe and share it with your friends and family so you can tune in next time for People Are Amazing, the podcast.